Dr. Birnbaum is a scientist emeritus and former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and of the National Toxicology Program. She is also a scholar in residence at the Nicholas School of the Environment of Duke University and an adjunct full professor at Duke University of North Carolina and Neal University School of Public Health. She is the author of more than 1,000 peer-reviewed articles, book chapters, and reports. She is a member of the National Academy of Medicine, has multiple honorary doctorates and awards. Best of all, now that she is retired after 40 years of government service, she can make good trouble. Linda Birnbaum, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to have the opportunity to meet both you, Mia, and Mustafa. Uh, you've had an amazing career in an area that many of us don't really know about. I would like to go a little bit into your journey, but just to talk about when we think about the contaminants in our air and in our water, uh, there's just, there are some alarming statistics like 8 million deaths a year due to air pollution. Can you help us understand some of those contaminants that we are um, taking into our bodies without even realizing it? Well, I think there's a whole range of contaminants. Let's kind of take air, water, and then maybe food as the third place for contaminants. And so we know that air pollution actually kills people. Um, the estimates are it is about 8 million a year. And of course, a lot of that is really related to indoor air, not necessarily outdoor air, which is what we all regulate. There's very little control of what goes in inside your house, but especially in, in less developed countries, where there's a lot of indoor cooking with say coal or dung or wood, a lot of, especially women and young children actually die from the air pollution associated with that. We also know when I mentioned indoor air, just because it's an understudied area, but in fact, what's outdoors comes indoors and what's indoors also goes outdoors. So a lot of the things like volatile organic carbons, things like benzene or toluene, they start indoors and a lot of them then go outdoors and, and where they can be associated with problems as well. So air pollution, we know is bad. We know it does a lot more than just cause deaths. Air pollution is associated with lung problems, heart problems, problems with learning and memory, especially if exposure occurs early in life, both exposure in utero or to infants, we know it's a problem. We know there's an increase in risk of small for, small for gestational age babies. Um, and, and babies who are small for gestational age, underweight basically, often are at increased risk then of becoming obese or at least overweight as they grow. And we know that there's an increased risk of obesity related to air pollution and an increased risk, for example, of uh, type two diabetes. Air pollution is really complex. It's not just one kind of chemical. We have in the United States that are called um, kind of the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. So we've got PM, which is both 2.5 and 10, and those are very small particles, especially the 2.5. We have ozone, we have sulfur oxides, we have nitrous oxides, we have carbon monoxide, and we have lead. But then you have all the volatile organic chemicals. Again, in the US, we group them as hazardous air pollutants. And, and that's a whole nother suite of chemicals. So it's very difficult to pin effects from air pollution to a specific chemical often. You know, we say, so we know that PM is bad. We know that ozone is bad. We know that, you know, carbon monoxide, we've known for years that carbon monoxide, <laughs> if you have that instead of oxygen, you know, you're not going to make it. So we know those things, but, but we find that, for example, for PM pollution, it's not all the same. Not only is there the size difference, the 2.5 and the 10, but there's also the composition of particulate matter varies. So we know, for example, that diesel exhaust from diesel trucks or diesel car is especially bad because it has a lot of some things called a lot of metals and a lot of PAHs, which are chemicals that we know can cause cancer. So you have 
you have a range, but when, when PM is regulated or policies are set, doesn't seem to make much difference that assessing the risk just based upon the mass of PM works pretty well. And so the good news is, is around the world, certainly in developed countries, the, the level of air pollution has come down, um, come down from the peak that it had, for example, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. The WHO just came out with new recommendations for PM, um, PM 2.5, which are lower than anywhere else. And they're kind of aspirational. So the point is, is we know that even within the current regulatory limits, say in the US or in Europe, we know that people are still dying and people are still getting sick. So we'd like to continue to bring that down. Now, of course, in less developed parts of the world or in emerging parts of the world, like your BRIC countries, for example, China and India, we know that the air pollution there, we've all seen the, the pictures of uh, Delhi where you can't even see across the street or Beijing where it used to be terrible. Now, these are starting to improve, but they're still way too high. So that's kind of a, a brief introduction to, to air pollution. And then I'd like to switch kind of to water pollution. I think water pollution is the next most, let's say, um, toxic <laughs> problem that we deal with. But I think we have to realize that, especially with water pollution, we have microbial risks as well as chemical risks. And I think the microbial risks people are more alerted to. So we all know the story of Professor John Snow in London in the 1860s, where he was able to take the handle off the pump in a specific area because he had traced the spread of a cholera epidemic and turned out that it was coming from water that was contaminated with a cholera bacteria. So we often test for that. We don't test as often for chemical contamination of drinking water. And I mean, again, there's a whole range depending on how you sterilize your, well, how you get rid of the, the, the microbial contaminants in water, whether you use, for example, chlorine or whether you use ozone, which I believe is used in Paris, is the, the main source of decontaminating water. You do generate some what we call disinfection byproducts. The one problem with ozonation is it does a great job of killing all the bugs where ozonation occurs, but it doesn't maintain absence of bacteria as it goes through the pipes. So, you know, we're beginning to learn that there's a problem in our pipes if, for example, they're not continuously being used. So I used to, I've always been concerned where I live in North Carolina in the U.S. We went through a pretty bad drought a couple of years ago. So we're all conserving water to the, as much as we possibly could. And what happened um, or what I've learned, well, let me back up again. You know, so you would just, you would barely turn on the water. You would turn on a little bit, put it in a cup if you were going to brush your teeth. And what I've learned is, in fact, that's probably not a good thing to do, especially if you've been away for a while. And I, before the pandemic, I traveled a lot. And so then I'll say, you know, we'll run your water a little bit before you start ingesting it, because that will get rid of some of the biofilm that might be in the pipes. So again, contaminants in water, not only do we have dis disinfection byproducts, we have things like um, metals. Some of them are naturally occurring. Again, in North Carolina, we have an area of our state where there's a lot of arsenic in the groundwater, you know, naturally occurring. I mean, obviously you could have industrial contamination, but you can also have naturally occurring things like arsenic. And I guess some of the, the chemicals that I'm spending a lot of my time on lately are things called the PFAS, which are the per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And they're a huge class and we can come back to them later, but they can be a very significant um, pollutant in drinking water. And we estimate in the United States that over a third of our population is drinking water with elevated levels of PFOA and PFOS, which are the two PFAS that we have the most information on. So that's just another example. And then I think we need to remember that food, you know, we all eat one way or another, and there are 
contaminants that can be present in our food. So I mentioned arsenic in water. Arsenic can also be present in food because, for example, if rice is grown in water where there's naturally occurring arsenic, rice will take it up into the rice. And so rice can be contaminated. And our Food and Drug Administration, a number of years ago, actually put out kind of a, I wouldn't say a warning, but it said to parents of young children, when you start giving your child food, don't make it only rice. You know, because a lot of people would use rice cereal and rice crackers and um, other kinds of things. And, and because there can be elevated levels of um, arsenic in food. In addition, we have things like, and I think the, some of the, the endocrine disrupting chemicals. So PFAS happens to be uh, in that class also, but you have things like BPA and all of it relatives, which are being used. And you have things like phthalates, which is a whole class of chemicals, um, which again, many of these are used, for example, in plastic packet, um, packaging, as well as other kinds of food packaging, and they can migrate into the food. So there's actually data. Um, there are some studies that have been done here in the US that I'm aware of, where they've looked, compare the levels of some of these chemicals in people who say eat a lot of fast food, versus people who don't, and you find that people with fast food have higher levels of this, and a lot of it is coming from the packaging. But then again, we just have to be aware that there can also be contaminants in food. Again, a lot of the attention, I think, food contamination, at least in our country with our FDA, has focused more on microbial contamination of food, where all of a sudden they'll say, don't eat this kind of lettuce, or don't eat this kind of vegetable, because it's contaminated with E. coli or salmonella or something. So that, that, those are just a couple of examples. I mean, there, you know, there, there's always occupational exposure, which in some ways we should use as um, indicators of where we stand or where we might stand because the, what happens in, in occupational is often much higher levels of exposure. So we know, for example, um, in the U.S., many of um, our nail salons are, are, especially we have many Vietnamese who have nail salons, also especially Koreans um, in, in our country. And, and the exposure to things like phthalates, which are present in some of the nail polishes, for example, um, and they can be volatile. And so these women are usually women are inhaling this stuff as they do their job. So that's just an example. So, you know, there can be exposure from various ways and various places. I didn't mention soil and sediment. That's also kind of an issue, especially uh, for lead. We know that, yes, lead can be an air pollutant. Yes, lead can contaminate your drinking water because of lead solder on pipes. But we know that little children, especially, um, get exposed to lead by playing in soil that has elevated lead in it or by putting their fingers in their mouth all the time. And old paint has, can have a lot of lead in it. So I, I, those are just some examples. And that's probably much longer list of examples that you were interested in at the beginning of our conversation. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I don't even know uh, how you sometimes go through the day being aware of all the things that you are. You mentioned that you can you can isolate these chemicals, but usually we might test for a chemical, but it's not to say how it, it reacts with another chemical or another contaminant. And you mentioned water. And I don't know, is this true that we test for fewer than 100 chemicals in water? But there's thousands. There are thousands, just like there are in air or just like there are in food. You know, we sometimes compartmentalize so much you know, we forget that what is food? Food is made up of chemicals, right? And I think we need to be, begin to be broader in our understanding because for example, you know, we all have within us, on us and within us our microbiomes. And we think a lot about the um, GI bacteria, for example. And we now know that if people, for example, are obese, they have a very different microbial content in their gut than people who are um, not, not obese, let's say. Or, or we know, for example, that a baby born by C-section has a different microbial composition 
than a baby born vaginally. And we know that these things can have impacts. We know that many of the bacteria have the ability, for example, to metabolize um, some of the contaminants as well as things in our food, for example. And we know that you can have a different response depending upon what people are eating. For, and that's just an example. But I think you were getting at the larger issue, which is the complexity really of the exposures. Um, I mentioned that we should remember that what you eat is chemicals as well, but we also have, and I mentioned the microbiome, which are different kinds of microbials, not only bacteria, it's virus and fungi, for example, and certain parasitic protozoans. And we also need to think about things like, you know, what we routinely um, say our social behaviors. So, you know, if you're drinking alcohol or if you're enjoying some marijuana or something like that, you may respond very differently than you would have not. Plus, there are so many chemicals. In the United States, we used to say there are at least 80,000 chemicals in commerce, of which less than 20% have had any testing um, at all. And the really good point that you brought up, Mia, was, but wait, we're not exposed to one at a time. Is there interaction going on? So the answer is, in most cases, we don't know. There are some attempts. People have, for example, um, done experiments where they would say, I'm going to, you know, look at chemical A and chemical B, and then I'm going to combine them and see what happens. But that, again, is very short of the complexity of the reality of hundreds or thousands of chemicals that you get exposed to on a daily basis. I, I would say there's a term that people use, um, something from nothing. And that's because when you do some studies where you use levels that are supposedly safe of chemicals, but you test a bunch of them together, all of a sudden you get a response. And so that clearly says there's something you're adding up all their little effects, or maybe you are enhancing the effects of a few. In most cases, we don't know the answer to that. Right. It's a question of just really managing risk and priorities. So when you became director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, what were some of those priorities? What was your mission going in? So one of my, I, I would say I had a couple of real goals. One of them was to make it, make NIEHS one NIEHS. And what I meant by that is I wanted to break down the silos between the different programs, the different groups and between our grantees. Another one is that I don't really believe you can do environmental health without invol involving communities in your studies. People who are being exposed or living in communities where pollution is, is an issue, and I guess we all have some issue, they know what their problems are, or they have ideas, and we need to involve them from the very beginning, not just decide we're gonna do this study and we're gonna study them and then Maybe it's, you know, we'll go in and take samples from them and then it's bye-bye. They need to be involved from the beginning. Another thing that I really focused some of the areas were the complexity of exposures. So we often moved from looking at one exposure at a time to something called the exposome, which is captured as the totality of exposure, both kind of in time and space. It's very hard to do that because your exposures may change not only day to day, but minute to minute and hour to hour. But the exposome is kind of looking at the totality of your exposure um, using some of the newer tools of untargeted screening for chemistry. So you're not just looking under the, uh, the expression we would use is under the lamppost. You know, you're looking more broadly for things you didn't think might be there. It's looking at the different omics approaches. So. Most people are all excited about genomics. We're going to find out what gene does what. And the answer is, I think overall, we've been pretty disappointed since the sequencing of the human genome. You know, I think we know a lot of the health conditions that are, are due to a single Mendelian gene, you know, something like hemophilia. But most health conditions, there can be 30 or 100 or more genes that play a role in it. But it's helpful because nothing is just gene. Everything is genes and environment. And just like nothing's just environment, it's the interaction. So you have the genomics. Then you have things like we call the exposomics, 
which is looking at the, all the kinds of chemicals that you might be exposed to. Then you have things called metabolomics, which are looking at the metabolite and especially focusing on endogenous metabolites. You know, we all have all kinds of sugars and amino acids, for example, in our body and trying to understand what happens over time with, with those. You'll hear have things like lipidomics, <laughs> which are looking at our lipids, um, which are, again, kind of often um, understudied component of, of our body systems. Um, and then you have proteomics, which is looking at all the proteins that are produced. You know, it's, it's one thing to have a gene, but a gene has to be turned on, right? And if the gene is not turned on, you're not going to get, say, the protein, which to carry something out. So we look at proteomics and make, can make comparisons. And then one of the omics I did mention was the um, epigenomics. So I would say shortly after, or just around the time that I became director of NIEHS in early 2009, the epi, epigenetics was just beginning to be talked about. Now it had originally been kind of postulated about 50 years earlier. Um, but what epigenetics really is, is let's talk about it. Um, your DNA, your genomics is the score and the epigenomics is the conductor who tells the different genes what to play when. The epigenome controls when genes are turned on and off. And there are different ways that they can be trolled, that they can be, that that can happen. It can be um, some modifications of DNA put on, on small groups like methyl groups. It can be modifications of the proteins called histone proteins. There were four kinds which cause the DNA to curl up into kind of coils. And you can put, again, small molecules like methyl groups or acetyl groups or the, some other groups that can go on. And that can um, play a role in how the chromosome are structured. And basically, you can't activate a gene if it's all tied up in this tight coil of DNA. It has to kind of be spread out. So there are ways to do that. And then there are things that we didn't even know about, things that I would say even 20 years ago, we thought were junk. So there was all this RNA in the cell. You know, we were only interested in three types of RNA. We had messenger RNA and transfer RNA, which helped put the amino acids in the right place in a growing protein by complexing with the messenger RNA. And you had, and you had the, the RNA in the ribosomes, which are your protein-making factories of the cell. We now know there are other kinds. You have microRNAs. And the microRNAs can, again, block expression of genes. So it's an epigenetic kind of control mechanism. And we're beginning to understand that there are patterns in microRNA expression. So for example, exposure to certain chemicals, mainly say PCBs, can lead to elevated levels of certain microRNAs, which may be associated with certain kinds of health endpoints. So it, it's an exploding, I would say epigenomics is an exploding field that's very exciting. Um, some other things that I was very interested in doing, I, I was very interested in, uh, I, I am a toxicologist and I was interested in kind of moving toxicology into the 21st century. I am still think that there is a, a definite role and a need to continue to do experimental animal studies in order to, but I think that we can use some of these, they call them new approach methodologies methodologies, which involve computational approaches and in vitro approaches, for example, and modeling approaches to get an idea of where we might have problems in, in whole organisms. And we can also use, for example, other kinds of um, animals rather than always say rats or mice or even monkeys. Um, we can, there's a lot of work being done now with little tiny fish called zebrafish, which I happen to really like because in their first days of development, they are totally, totally transparent so that you can actually watch the heart developing and the brain developing and stuff. And it's very exciting. And, and nature, in my belief, is inherently conservative. And when it finds something that works, it tends to do it again and again. So if we find things that stay perturbed, development 
in a zebrafish, it's likely that they are going to have adverse effects in animals and in people. I, I am a believer that people are a kind of animal. And, you know, so if we see um, a, an effect of an exposure, and, and it could be, it, it, it doesn't even have to be a chemical exposure. It could be a social exposure. We know that our disadvantaged populations, our low-income populations, have increased risk for many things, not only because of what they may be exposed to, but because of the stress that they're under. And we sometimes forget that stress is a chemical signal. So I just think that we need to try to pull this all together. And it's, it's a huge issue. I mean, I, when you asked me, mixtures was another topic that I really wanted us to start addressing. I will say that we did fund some really exciting um, novel approaches to working with mixtures in our, in our epidemiology program, which we have a very large, robust epidemiology program. There are people who want to say that, you know, when we do observational studies in humans, you know, you can't say that X causes Y. But I would say when you have multiple studies in different populations, um, and they all find something that goes together. And then you have animal data and maybe mechanistic data, which goes along with what you observe in your humans. To ignore that is, is a huge risk. Some of my medical colleagues, you know, are used to looking for an effect that they can see in the person. But Mia, I can't say, you know, if, if you'd had five, or if you'd had a little less blood lead as the baby, you'd have five more IQ points. You, you can't ever prove that on an individual. You're talking public health and it's a distribution of a population that you can see be shifted. And that, that can be a hard, hard sell. But I, I remind my medical colleagues that we all know that lead is bad. I don't think anyone questions that lead is bad for the developing brain. And we know that lead is also affects the cardiovascular system and the renal system and bones and so on. But we have no controlled, double-blind, randomized trials of exposing people to lead. Same thing with cigarette smoke. I think there are very few people today who would say cigarette smoking doesn't cause lung cancer. There have been no control, you know, double-blind, randomized, controlled trials in people to see if their, their smoking caused lung cancer. But there is so much observational data, and we have animal data, and we have mechanistic data that it, it begins to form a package where I think we can make some of those conclusions. So on the topic of one of the things that you were explaining earlier, which was exposomics, uh, that's something that I had wanted to ask about. And my question is, I think, in two parts. The first is, what do you think is most exciting or useful about the field of exposomics as it's like starting up now? And then the second is a little more related to what you were saying with epigenomics, which is what do you think are going to be the interdisciplinary works that need to happen with the other omics fields? Let's take that one first, okay? And then we'll come back to the epigenomics. So with the epigenomics, I think it's already happening. In other words, many of the, the other omics, you're looking for interactions. Obviously, you can't methylate a cytosine in DNA, which is the kind of base that often gets methylated if you don't have a cytosine at that position, right? So there's a, clearly an interaction that goes on between the base sequence of the DNA and where epigenomic changes can occur. So that's happening. We also know, I think, as I mentioned earlier, that if, if the region of a gene is not kind of spread out, if it's all tied up in this very tight co coil of chromatin, the gene can't be expressed. And gene expression, we're looking for the protein that gets produced from that gene. You know, again, when the genome was first sequenced, people were really a little surprised and maybe a little upset. There were only about 20,000 genes they found in people. And yet, there's a lot of variability. And part of it is because it's what genes get turned on when, as well as we've learned that, you know, some genes, that there are different parts of a gene that can be expressed. We learned that a lot of the DNA is actually key to controlling gene expression. 
So I think there's a lot going on there. So clearly the epigenomics and the proteomics are clearly linked. And what the proteins do? Well, many of them produce metabolites. So that links it to the metabolomics, right? <laughs> you know, if you can't have a certain enzyme out, you're not going to get that certain metabolite being produced. Lipids also, I mean, you know, enzymes, I guess an exciting understanding in the last 10 years or so is the fact that certain kinds of RNA can actually have an enzymatic function all their own. But, you know, I think, I think they're all integrated because if you don't control a specific gene, expression, you're not, other things are not going to happen. And I think epigenomics allows us to begin to understand why a skin cell is different than a lung cell is different than, you know, a bone cell, yet they all have the same DNA sequence. It's because of what gets turned on in them. So as far as exposomics, I think the exposome approach is enabling us to begin to understand some of the complexity of exposure and feedback into then into so the other kinds of omics, like the genomics or the ep epigenomics and stuff. We often, and, and this is especially true like in epidemiology studies, the question that is asked is, you know, did lead cause these cardiovascular effects that we're observing? And the answer is probably, but Lead is just one component, say, of air pollution. I mean, there, there are estimates that in the U.S. there are maybe 400,000 excess deaths a year related to cardiovascular effects associated with lead. But we know that there are other things that cause cardiovascular effects. So if you can begin to understand um, what's in the body at either at a specific points in times or over time, uh, you know, I guess one of the, and I should have said this before, Mia, one of the things that I was most determined to to make a difference in was the issue of early life exposure and the fact that a good life, a good start lasts a lifetime, but the opposite is also true. So understanding that what happens some, for some things that can even be preconceptional in both the male and, and the female, not always obvious how that happens, but there are there's clear evidence in utero exposure is a clear window of susceptibility. We have multiple windows of susceptibility. You know, um, childhood is the time of susceptibility. Adolescence is a you know, anytime your body is rapidly um, changing, whether it's just growth or it's differentiation that's happening, there's an opportunity to basically to mess things up. And understanding that what happens early in life, we may not see those effects until someone is grown. In other words, there's this something called the testicular dysgenesis syndrome, which is associated with increase in cryptorchidism, increase in hypospadias, increase in testicular cancer, and um, decline in sperm content. And the evidence suggests that a lot of this is happening related to in utero exposure to estrogenic chemicals, to elevated estrogenic chemicals. And you know, but you're not going to, you know, you're not going to see the decrease in sperm count when the baby's born. You won't see that until they become an adult. You won't see testicular cancer in a newborn. You won't see it until people are usually in their um, 20s or 30s or 40s for testicular cancer. Right now, we're seeing an increase in, in cancer in children. Now, many of those cancers a large number of them we can successfully treat and cure the child of that, of that cancer. But, you know, if you have a one-year-old or a five-month-old or, or even a five-year-old who gets cancer, it's not from something they've been exposed to since they've been born. It's reflecting parental exposure prior to their birth. So I, I just think I should have mentioned that before, that, that the issue of you know, what happens early in life. And, and another actual really important window of susceptibility is pregnancy for a woman. You know, we're always thinking about, well, how's the baby doing? Well, we need to think about the mom too, because what's happening to a woman during pregnancy? Her body is rapidly changing. Think about um, development of the breast. So we have quite, quite a number of studies that are now indicating that 
breast cancer maybe is related to either prepubertal exposure or exposure, for example, during pregnancy, where a woman's breasts would be rapidly changing. So it's kind of a different paradigm. I think all too often, um, in the physicians want to ask someone about what happened yesterday. And that's fine if you're talking about an acute effect. And that's what a lot of occupational studies often do. But what we have to realize is that whatever happens to you early in life, you may not see anything or you may not detect any change or you, and you may never realize it's because of that exposure until much later. Dr. Birnbaum in her career has been watching a period of incredibly fast growth in her scientific understanding of the world. In this interview, she discusses two issues in her work that really interest me, exposomics and community engagement. Exposomics may be the most important new field for protecting human health and sustainability. In the past 200 years, our environment has changed drastically. Many of these changes are anthropogenic innovations. Chemically, we've been making fast and near ubiquitous changes. In order to understand these changes and curb possible toxic effects, we need to find new tools, fund new efforts, and engage with people and communities. People experience and remember many of their exposures. Before scientists study an environment, people live and work and raise families there. Dr. Birnbaum says in this interview that her medical colleagues sometimes look for visible outcomes in the individual from the exposure. Environmental health and its new field of exposomics have to cast a wider net understand the lifetimes of community members, and find ways to ensure their health. We're talking about our hormonal imbalances or infertility, and I'm wondering also then about the uh, psycho potential psychological expression of contamination where we might be wanting to treat an individual through therapies, but sometimes what we consume can also affect our mind. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of work going on related to neurodevelopmental effects. Because again, using lead as an example, early life exposures associated with decreased IQ. We know that as you increase or as the ex exposure levels to lead increase, then you start seeing other kinds of things. You see behavioral changes. Um, you may see, you know, that can get worse. And we know that there are many compounds now, you know, it's not only lead, it's not only arsenic, it's not only methylmercury, it's not only cadmium. All these things can impact the developing brain. It's also things like the organophosphate pesticides. I think the flame retardants are being shown to have impacts. I think, I mean, there's, there's many, the BPA, uh, phthalates. In fact, um, I actually <laughs> wrote it. I was asked to write an editorial about a paper that came out um, uh, last year on phthalates and neurodevelopment. And, you know, I basically said, you know, we've got to protect the brain of our kids because early life exposure, especially in utero for phthalates, but phthalates do a lot of other things too. I mean, phthalates affect the male reproductive system. So we've actually, well, there's data that first started becoming available in about 1992 uh, when the Danes published a paper showing the decrease in sperm count. And that has now been repeated in many studies and in many populations. And th there is clearly a lot of evidence that there is a pretty linear decrease in sperm count starting at least 50 years ago, maybe more like 60 or 70 years ago, certainly in Europe and North America and Australia. It's not that it's not happening, for example, in Africa or the Far East or, or Latin America. We just don't have enough data, you know, to confirm it. But um, Shauna Swan, who's an expert in this area, um, recently published a book called Countdown, and she predicts that by 2050, actually, maybe it's 2045, she thinks that most men in the developed world will not have um, enough sperm or possibly any sperm, active sperm, to create babies. And we are seeing pretty much a decreased fertility, both in men and women, in many parts of the world. Now, some of that isn't a problem in terms of the number of people we have in the world, but it certainly can be a tragedy for an individual couple. My next question was going to be about basically diversity in STEM. I was reading 
your early in your career writing uh, about how you had trouble balancing family and work in the early years. So my question was going to be, what developments, what progress do you think that we've made in inclusivity in your lifetime? And also, what do you think there is left to do? Well, inclusivity is one of my favorite words. I thought I was the one who created it about 25 or 30 years ago, maybe more. Um, because it, it, it can apply to full inclusion of many, on many topics. It's not just male, female. It's not just black or Asian or white. It, it's, you know, it's not just rich or poor. It's all that. And we enrich our work with the more diversity that we have. So it's, you know, I think some of us were so conditioned to the lack of diversity that I would find myself unwittingly, say, setting up a program, a, a symposium or a series of lectures or, or a meeting. And, and all of a sudden I'd look at the composition and it was all men. And then I would say, oh my gosh, how did I do that? You know, and how can I blame the guys for doing that if I do it? And you got to step back and say, wait a minute, there are qualified women, for example. There are qualified people of different races or ethnicities that we need to be involving. And it just leads to better work. We're not anywhere where we need to be. I would say the issue of combining work and a family has not progressed nearly as far as I'd like to have seen it. I was very lucky. I mean, I married for a very, very long time. And I have a husband who um, retired when he was 55. And he did a lot of this helpful, he always did a lot of the helpful stuff that needed to be done at home and, and to have a house. Not everybody has that. I thought, I actually did work um, part-time for a total of five years. When my kids were little, I have three children, now very grown children, <laughs> grandchildren, but um, you know, when they, when they were little. And I don't think, and I've tried to tell young women, I don't think it made any difference. You know, would I have been director of NIEHS a few years earlier than I was? Maybe, but what's the difference? I had the, the, the joy of being able to spend more time with young children, with my young children. I, I, I had thought that we as societies would be doing a better job of, of share, job sharing, for example. So you would have two people doing this, you know, each sharing a job. That hasn't worked out very much. I've also observed that when you have like review panels, if people work part-time, they have a really hard time evaluating them fairly. In other words, they often will, they often, they'll say, oh, okay, you're only working half time, so we only expect half the number of publications, but they don't, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so I think that those are some opportunities. I think when we get to some of our more diverse populations, you know, valuing traditional ecological knowledge as well as scientific knowledge is really, really important. You know, I said before how I um, insisted that at NIEHS, all of our programs studying environmental health, you know, had to have um, community engagement as part of it. And I think because the ecological knowledge can be very important. You know, when someone says, you know, I'll give you one quick example. Um, there was asbestos poisoning from a mine just outside of town in northern Montana. And it's a beautiful narrow valley with a river running through it and snow-capped peaks on either side. Beautiful location. But this is the one Superfund site in the United States where there are clearly people who died from the exposure. You had a huge number of people die from mesothelioma, asbestosis, and other asbestos-related diseases. And talking to the indigenous people from those area, they said, oh, we never lived in that area. Nobody ever set up, we might have traveled through it, but we never lived there because it was a sick area. So they didn't know what was causing their illness, but they knew it wasn't healthy to be there. And I think those are the kinds of things we have to be ready to listen to. 
Exactly. There's all this indigenous or just ancient knowledge where we did used to live more in harmony and within, you know, certain limits. We have to to listen to that. And so much of medicine also comes out of that too. But I'm wondering for those who don't have that indigenous knowledge, who aren't environmental health scientists, you know, just going into the supermarket or purchasing the things for your home, you, you look, you're confronted by these labels that it really, just to decipher them is so confusing. What are some practical things? What are some practical things that we should avoid? You know, let's just start with that. And also on the other hand, how can we make corporations who are making most of these things for us be more transparent and accountable? Well, that, that is a great question. And I don't think there's an easy answer. You know, anytime you see something labeled fragrance, be suspicious of what's causing that fragrance, um, that's often problematic. We often say to people, if you can buy organic, eat more natural foods, don't have all the preserved foods. We've known for a long time, for example, that for example, some of your preserved meats like hot dogs and bologna and salami aren't really good for you. On the other hand, you could drive yourself crazy. Um, you know, occasionally having those things is not gonna, probably not gonna be problematic. Um, the problem with a lot of organic kind of produce and stuff is it's very expensive. And for many people, especially in some of our diverse communities, they don't even have access to some natural products. Um, unfortunately, the, the cheapest food, or let me start the other way, foods which fill your belly easily are often the most unhealthy and the cheapest. So... You know, if you eat a lot of corn syrup or based pastas and potatoes and, you know, they'll, and sweets and sugars, um, all that kind of thing will fill you up, but it's not necessarily good for your health. My last question was just about, um, as we get the results of larger studies, larger work, uh, on exposure and toxicology, how do we ensure that it actually gets applied in you know, the policy realm. That's a really hard, I, I think you need public action. In other words, I think we used to say that like what news makes news is usually not the good news, it's the bad news. And mm -hmm. you need a certain amount of outreach in order to get things to happen. I will say that in the United States, unfortunately, um, our EPA has done a pretty good job with air pollution. It has not done a good job with consumer products, really. And often, but often, you know, chemicals that we know are bad and we've known are bad for a long time, the regulations, the policies of the agencies were never completed. They take too long. In other words, talking about the PFAS, PFOA and PFOS, which are just two of the more than 12,000 PFAS that exist and are the ones that we know the most about. EPA has been studying them heavily for well over 20 years, and they are just getting ready to regulate them in drinking water in another year and a half. Well, with 12,000 chemicals, you can't wait that long for all of them, right? I mean, you'll never get the testing done. You'll never know. So that at least in our country, some of the most important regulations have come from our Congress. Congress banned PCBs, not EPA. Congress banned DDT, not EPA. And asbestos in our country is still not banned. You know, con I mean, EPA tried to ban it in 1991, and our court system said that they hadn't met the, the level of the law or something. So, I mean, I think if you can generate outrage, if you can get people concerned about something, and, and this is kind of a backwards way to do it. Instead of saying, how can we, how can we make products or how can, you know, that are not going to impact our health or how can we have food that's going to be healthy for us? Instead, we're always kind of playing catch up with, oh my goodness, this is bad for us. What do we do now? So it's kind of maybe instead of focusing on the problems going forward, we need to focus more on the solutions of where, where, where do we want to be? How do we want to have a healthy, healthy people and a healthy planet versus 
trying to clean up things that are made without thought. Yes. And that brings us, you know, in closing, you know, as you reflect on the challenges we face, the environment, education, human and planetary health, uh, you know, share a, a memory of like the beauty and wonder of the natural world with us. Well, I just like taking walks and hearing the birds sing. I live in a, a wooded area in a small city, I guess you'd call. Um, I live right near the University of North Carolina. It's so, you know, we've got lots of students around, but just walking in the woods, you know, I, I, for me, if I'm, when I exercise, I'd much rather be outside, you know, hearing the birds, seeing those little rabbits running around, looking at the trees, looking at the blue sky. That to me is meaningful. Um, I think I'll never forget actually when I was back in the sixties and I flew home from college and it was the first time I ever noticed this yellow haze that I had to fly through. Um, going to Newark, New Jersey. And that was kind of when I first began to be concerned about what was happening to our environment. And we all know, I think, or we would all agree that climate change is the existential threat um, for all of us. But I think we need to remember that while air pollution is intimately linked to climate change, other climate types of pollution are not but we need to be aware that they are going to be impacted by climate change. So there's going to be more use of pesticides. They're going to be used in different places. We're going to have change in the place of vectors of disease, whether mosquitoes or bats or whatever, which are going to move disease to different places. The food we're going to food at higher temperatures is less nutritious than food grown at lower temperatures that, and also more CO2 in the atmosphere. Again, the food will not be as nutritious. We need to begin to understand this and work with it all to go forward and celebrate um, the whole issue of One Health, which is people, animals, and the environment. And we are all in this together. Well, thank you so much for your holistic vision, Linda S. Birnbaum, for helping us understand how the environment influences human health and disease so that we can protect our planet and future generations. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you, man. I enjoyed it. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Anne Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Mustafa Sheikh with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Rouse. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.